Welcome to Morning Seminary. I'm your host, Simeon Sideways, and in this podcast, we'll explore some of the teachings of the Book of Mormon, a strange book published in 1830 that Mormons claim is a historical account written by people from an ancient world. For now, let's ignore the Book of Mormon's mentions of horses, elephants, chariots, silk, steel, wheat, and all the other stuff that didn't exist in pre-Columbus America, or even how author Joseph Smith tried to sell the copyright to a fiction publisher. We are here to read some stories together. What if you had the answer to life? A solution that worked for every situation to give you the very best possible outcome. A magic wand to wave away your troubles and leave behind nothing but happiness. How far would you go to protect it? Would you sacrifice relationships if they got in the way? What if you got bored of everything just working out all the time? For the restless among us, the search for capital T truth is constant, with epiphanies popping up in all kinds of unexpected places. There you are picking off dead leaves from your tomato plant when you're suddenly struck by the brilliance of plants sloughing off old parts that no longer serve them. This means something. This is important. Beautiful though these moments are, revelation is fickle, and most epiphanies are quickly forgotten. Even worse, intuition is subjective. Not every thought is true, even the beautiful ones. And without an authority figure to lay down the law and define what's true, we're left only with our own wild guesses. Unless we're not, as the Mormon Church claims. By following their concrete, easy-to-follow doctrines, they say, anyone can obtain joy and avert disaster. The gospel of Jesus Christ is simply beautiful and beautifully simple. This sounds like it, the answer to life. And the instructions are surprisingly simple. Follow the prophet, read your scriptures, pray, go to church, and always, always pay your tithing. Do these things for the rest of your life, and God will take care of the rest. So simple a child can grasp it. Done. Now that we're comfortably on the right track, you know, no drugs, alcohol, premarital sex, etc., it's time to find some answers to those tough life questions. How do I pick which college to attend? How will I know when it's time to get married? What should I do to recover from losing a loved one? Simple. The answer is Jesus Christ. Alright, maybe that's a little too simple, hmm? Does Jesus ever mention how to find work when nobody's hiring? Or how to let go of a friendship that isn't toxic but just kind of sucks? Not really. Not directly, at least. He uses allegory. Stories where people, places, and things are used to deliver a broader message about real issues and occurrences. For example, when Jesus talks about banishing wedding guests who weren't dressed for the occasion, he's actually alluding to the eternal consequences of not preparing for his rise from the dead, after which he will judge, rule, and reign over all who lived. Right? Like the wedding guest thing was just a stand-in. In this episode, we're talking about a favorite allegory of the Book of Mormon, the Tree of Life. Behold, I have dreamed a dream! Lehi, whose visions have his family living in tents in the wilderness, has another vision. This time, a dreamscape filled with people and a tree whose fruit is white above all whiteness. He sees a heavenly being who leads him out of a dark and dreary fog toward a tree, 
and beckons him to partake of its white fruit. Lehi tastes the fruit and is blown away by its unrivaled sweetness. He is filled with joy. I began to be desirous that my family should partake of it also, for I knew that it was desirable above all other fruit. Lehi looks around for his wife and kids. Off in the distance, he spots Sariah, his wife, and their two sons, Nephi and Sam. Hey, Zad! Zad! Over here! Zad! Over here! He also calls to his other two sons, Laman and Lemuel, but they ignore him because that's what they do, I guess. They always do that. Anyway, innumerable people wander through Lehi's dreamscape, hoping to reach the Tree of Life, but there are obstacles. Deadly cliffsides, rivers of filth, and mists of darkness. How will these hopeful pilgrims find their way to eternal joy? By holding to the iron rod. The iron rod is the perfectly dependable, straight, manicured walkway to joy. The straight and narrow. Hold to the rod, the song goes, and you'll be safely guided to eternal happiness. Just put one foot in front of the other and don't deviate from the path. It's that simple. Not everyone holds onto the rod, though. Some let go and stray just far enough to become blinded by thick, dark fog. Why would you tint the inside of the windows? I don't want anybody to see in. We can't see out, Frank! Others slip and fall into the river of filth, where they are churned up, spat out, and presumably left to die on the riverbank. Then there are those who reach the tree, greeted by their families and handed some fruit to enjoy. But even they don't all stick around. They taste the fruit but hang their heads in embarrassment. They leave, and even though Lehi begs them to stay and be part of this eternal bliss, they're just not interested. What could make someone do this? What force is powerful enough to douse the greatest joy ever felt and throw it all away? Is the fruit rotten? Full of microplastics? It's very convincing fruit, okay? No, it's shame they feel. Shame from the jeering scoffers across the river at the great and spacious building. And it was filled with people, both old and young, male and female whose manner of dress was exceedingly fine, and they was mocking and pointing their fingers at those partaking of the fruit. I mean, nobody wants to look like a loser, right? Who wouldn't forsake life's greatest joy if people were pointing and laughing at them? The other obstacles are child's play compared to the devastating mockery and disapproval of the folks at the great and spacious building. Allegory alert! The great and spacious building doesn't mean actual great and spacious buildings. It's a stand-in for the allure and enchantment of larger-than-life pleasures that, though fleeting and hollow, entice the weak of faith into giving up eternal happiness. It's a metaphor about how even if you're knee-deep in the greatest joy you've ever felt, you're never safe from outside voices who ridicule happiness because they can't understand it. They look happy, and they look free. But don't mistake celestial pleasure for celestial happiness and joy. Don't envy a lesser and lower life. The people in the Great and Spacious Building are, I assume, welcome to visit the Tree of Life anytime they want. Meanwhile, the Tree of Life crew all but forbids visiting the Great and Spacious Building. Great sadness awaits all who leave the Tree of Life. 
Not only do they forsake joy, but their selfish choice to abandon their loved ones destroys any hopes their families have of continuing to peacefully enjoy the fruit together. Walking away becomes a deliberate decision to hurt those they love. Grab onto the rod! Grab onto the rod! Hold onto the rod! The rod! Allegory alert! Lehi isn't talking about people who don't want to eat fruit anymore. He's talking about people who stray from the church. Those for whom even the greatest joy isn't enough to stay the course and preserve their eternal families. They'd rather hang with the cool kids. I think I'm totally in. I was so cool. <laughs> it was church president Brigham Young who coined the phrase, a peculiar people, a title many Mormons wear proudly. It's a way to own the dialogue and make sure that if anyone's going to be name-calling, it'll be them. You call yourself Fat Amy? Yes, yeah, so twig bitches like you don't do it behind my back. As a peculiar people, outside disapproval can be written off as misunderstanding or even bigotry. Is it their racist, sexist, and homophobic doctrines? Their history of child brides and shielding predators? The $5 million fine the church paid for hiding hundreds of billions of dollars in shell companies? No. People just hate Mormons because they're weird. Justifying the great and spacious building as a symbol for their martyr complex. One that has evolved in interesting ways. Take this clip from a Mormon YouTuber called Ward Radio. One of the most cruel and fraudulent tropes against Joseph Smith that has existed since the 1830s is this idea that he was nothing but a menial treasure digger, okay? And so, just like, I can't even say what the anti-Semitic tropes are here to compare them to the anti-Mormon tropes. Anyway, apparently the great and spacious building burns to the ground, though it's never made clear. We also never learn about the fates of those who fell into the river or were lost in darkness. What do you mean the people were just kind of nothing? They're just like not important, like, like they don't matter. The moral of the story? Hold to the rod. Choose the right. Fight the good fight. Do the right thing. Elaborate on that. No. The Iron Rod story prescribes exactly zilch about which college to pick or whether or not to get married. At least not beyond walking and holding onto a piece of metal. Yet these are the answers provided by church leaders. Vague instructions to be interpreted by you, the disciple. Which puts us right back at square one. Looking for the answer to life's tough questions. Scripturally, the passage says to hold to an iron rod. Metaphorically, it says my path must be steady and unwavering. Personally, I'm 100% positive that Kelly's husband took my keys, dude. He had this look on his face when he was... W ah, here they are. Thankfully, we don't have to discern vague scriptural passages alone. God has provided a spiritual witness to help us obtain confirmation of sacred knowledge. Just pray and ask. It's that easy. Here's a scripture Mormon missionaries quote to investigators after giving them a Book of Mormon. If ye shall ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. Simple, right? Ask sincerely and with faith, and you'll receive a spiritual witness of scriptural truths. Get a different result? Maybe you don't feel anything at all? Just try again, this time with more sincerity and more faith. Why didn't I think of that? Be careful, though. Not all personal inspiration is to be trusted. In the 1970s, the presidency of the church said, quote, 
When inspiration is out of harmony with the accepted revelations of the church or contrary to the decisions of its constituted authorities, it is not of God. So your own personal revelation can only be true if it's in harmony with either A, church revelations, or B, church authorities. To complicate things, scriptures sometimes contradict prophetic revelation. Sometimes they even contradict each other. Past doctrine can be at odds with present doctrine, and has been many times. For example, the scriptures in Doctrine and Covenants section 132 say that no one who rejects the eternal principle of polygamy can live with God in heaven. But when church president Gordon B. Hinckley was asked on TV about polygamy, he said, I condemn it, yes, as a practice because I think it is not doctrinal. Side note. Current church president Russell M. Nelson is, at this moment, sealed in marriage to two different women. He remarried after his first wife died and expects to be married to both of them in heaven. Is the prophet violating doctrine or was President Hinckley lying? How are we supposed to trust anything in the scriptures if they can be both true and not true depending on which prophet you ask? If I were to sincerely pray and ask God about what to believe here, what answer could he give that wouldn't throw either the scriptures or the prophets under the bus? This is a recurring issue in the church. Strict obedience to prophets on one hand and the revealed word of God on the other. For example, the scriptures say, Whether by mine own voice or by the voice of my servants, it is the same. And the prophet will never lead the church astray. But then church leaders go and say things like, there have been times when members or leaders in the church have simply made mistakes. And give Brother Joseph a break. Suddenly, that strong and true iron rod looks more like a balance beam made of paper clips and surrounded on either side by shame and embarrassment. There's a right answer, but seriously? You really need someone to tell you what it is? David, I cannot show you everything. Okay, well, can you show me one thing? Okay. You may remember the church's I'm a Mormon campaign from 2016, when the church made a big movie and told everyone to change their profile pictures accordingly. It took just two years since its launch before the next church president called the word Mormon a major victory for Satan. If God leads the Mormon church, why would he ever advertise a satanic term? Just hold to the rod. It's simple. So simple a child can grasp it. Do what church leaders tell you right now, in this moment, even if it contradicts what God witnessed to you by the Holy Spirit. Even if you know deep down that it's wrong. Yep, there's even a caveat for that. Writing to BYU professor Eugene England, Apostle Bruce R. McConkie wrote that God permits false doctrine to be taught in and out of the church. Such teaching is part of the sifting process of mortality. If what McConkie says is true, God would be answering prayers about false doctrine with confirmation that it's true. Otherwise, he'd be telling truth seekers not to follow the prophet. So simple a child can grasp it. Hold to the rod, even if it leads you off a cliff. Maybe that's why the great and spacious folks laughed at the iron rodders. Why some bailed after tasting the fruit. They were confused. Bad might be good. Good might be bad. How could anyone identify the rod, let alone hold on to it, if they can't count on the scriptures, the prophets, or even their own spiritual witness to reliably guide them? 
It were better for him to suffer an earthly death rather than to incur the penalty of jeopardizing his own eternal destiny. And now it's time for the Fair Mormon Response. If you're new to Morning Seminary, FAIR is the Mormon Church's apologist think tank. They write essays and blogs in an effort to shed light on difficult gospel topics, usually introducing more questions than they answer. Incidentally, Joseph Smith first heard the Tree of Life dream at age five from his own dad. Nice of him to include it in the Book of Mormon. When asked if Joseph Smith plagiarized his dad's vision, FAIR says... None of Joseph's family regarded the similarities as evidence that Joseph Jr. was engaging in a forgery. Which, like, who cares what his family thinks? I also learned that Robert Beckstead of the Sunstone Symposium suggests that the Tree of Life may have been a psychedelic, mushroom-induced drug trip. That article is linked in the show notes. After that, though... I fell into a massive rabbit hole and spent the rest of my Sunday reading and annotating a fair article entitled Evaluating Claims That Contradict the Prophets. It sucked, but here are a few highlights. Our obsession with authenticity and personalized truth, along with confusion about principles of revelation, have made a lot of us susceptible to harmful ideas that undermine our ability to truly commune with God. Here's another one. You cannot qualify for personal revelation if you aren't sincerely and actively sustaining the prophet. And finally, claims of revelation put an opportunistic spiritual gloss on expressive individualism, dressing up authenticity with fake spiritual authority. That last one is my favorite because Joseph Smith himself claimed to receive revelation and spiritual authority in the exact way this article says not to. The full annotated article is currently on Patreon for my subscribers to check out. Anyway, in my opinion, the beauty of the Iron Rod is in what it shares with all religions. A symbol to believe in. Born from our yearning to find that capital T true one-size-fits-all answer. It's an idea that can be whatever you need it to be in the moment you need it. Not because it changes or wavers for each situation, but because it's vague and demands your own unique individual interpretation. Only you can determine what the iron rod symbolizes in your life. At the end of the day, it's you who envisions what makes up a good person, and it's you who has to be that person to the world. The iron rod is just another way of saying, do what is right, a phrase that sheds basically no light on what's right or wrong. Don't you do anything you shouldn't do. But whatever you do, do well, and do right. I second that advice. Well, that's it for this episode of Morning Seminary. If you enjoyed it, please, please share with your friends. Maybe even consider subscribing to my Patreon, where you can get access to members-only content, like voting rights on character voices, family home evening chats every other Monday night, and stuff like that annotated article from FAIR. If you don't subscribe... I'll know it's because you abandoned truth to join the mocking throng at the great and spacious building. You're not part of the turbo team! Don't run! You don't run with us! Until next time, adieu.